Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. This week, my guest is Alberto Ibarguen. Now, as president of the Knight Foundation, Ibarguen is a fierce advocate of the First Amendment. So I talked with him about the state of journalism in the age of Twitter. He says we've been in this uncertain state before. After Gutenberg, any Tom, Dick, or Martin Luther could print <laughs> whatever they want. And it took 100 years to sort it all out. Ibarguen raises all sorts of questions about our social media age and the freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law abridging them. But what happens if Congress isn't doing the abridging? And what happens when we talk to Carol, my trusty producer? She doesn't say anything, but trust me, she's there. And did you realize that algorithms have parents? Your mind blown by that? Just wait until you hear what Elsie Bargman has to say right now. Alberto, thanks so much for being on Cape Up. My pleasure. So you were publisher of New York Newsday, El Nuevo Herald in Miami, the Miami Herald. Um, now you're the president of, of the Knight Foundation, which supports excellence in journalism and, uh, and other things when I focus on journalism. From where you've been professionally and where you sit now, how would you describe the state of journalism? Uh, confused. First, I want to say I, I was not the publisher of New York Newsday. I was the I was the executive vice president. The people who were publishers are probably listening to this podcast <laughs> and will say facts. Facts matter. Um, and in fact, facts do matter. Um, and facts are harder and harder uh, to come by when so much of the emphasis is on uh, the platform, the format, uh, and so much of the emphasis, so much of the attention is on presenting a point of view from somewhere. So now what do we do? Now how do we figure out what's real and what's memorex? How do we distinguish between somebody who thinks something is true and somebody who has actually done the work and verified that something is true. I think we're in a period analogous, truly analogous to uh, the time in Europe just after Gutenberg mechanized the Chinese invention of the printing press. Before Gutenberg, the monks would print maybe a Bible or two a year. The cardinal would give it its imp his imprimatur. And you knew what truth was. You could believe what you read. After Gutenberg, any Tom, Dick, or Martin Luther could print <laughs> whatever they want, and it took 100 years to sort it all out. We are in that sorting out period. In a way, nothing could be more exciting. I, anyone who tells me they're thinking about studying journalism, I say, go for it. This is a place where you, this is a craft where you need to be curious, you need to be smart, you need to be agile, um, you need to be reasonably aggressive, you need to be insightful, you learn to write, you learn to speak, now you have to learn to video. Um, I think these are all skills that are transferable and usable in all kinds of ways. And as long as we don't yet have the format that we had before, and maybe we'll never go back to it, to have the, the, uh, the newspaper uh, kind of hegemony that, that existed uh, uh, before in terms of settling serious news, I think it's a great field for people who are curious and want to explore. Which do you think has been more disruptive to, to journalism's status quo? Is it the Internet, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, 
all of the above? Surely all of the above, but don't forget cable television. Mm -hmm. the, the foundation uh, was laid with cable television. The popularity of opinion, the popularity of the hot on a cool medium, uh, which I think is one of the reasons for Donald Trump's uh, success. What works on TV is action, always was, mm -hmm. was action, color, movement, uh, something that's hot. In advertising in, in the newspaper business, you used to talk about announcing on broadcast and selling product in print. And it was the same sort of thing in terms of the news side. Uh, cable and television were hot. They were, they were for impression. They were for uh, creating image. And words, newspaper words, were for analysis. I'm generalizing uh, to make the point. Enter internet, and especially the internet of everything, and I think everything is up for grabs. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to be effective. We already have shifted from... Uh, cable to, you remember there was a time when we thought IBM was always going to be the biggest company everywhere. Right. And then there was Microsoft, and how could you possibly exceed Microsoft? And, and now and now it's Google was passed by Facebook and Apple. And so, and so it will, and, and Amazon is right around the corner, um, if not already there. The kinds of things that concern me and concern us at Knight Foundation on the one hand are the issues of free speech on internet. The law of First Amendment as to internet is not settled. It simply isn't settled. The cases haven't been heard. The cases haven't been decided. The law of First Amendment as to persons and as to press were clearly settled, especially from New York Times versus Sullivan on down. The law of First Amendment as to broadcast is also settled, and that was 19, in the 1930s with the Broadcast Act. And the difference is that in broadcast, you were given a license to speak. Press and persons were, had a right to speak. It didn't need a license, didn't need permission from government. Now comes internet, and it's a kind of combination of the two, and we're not quite sure where it's going. So we, we proposed to Columbia University, and they've accepted, and we've put up $30 million. They've uh, committed to match that amount of money to create the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia. And what will it do? I don't know. I don't know if it's going to bring a lawsuit for a year, two years, three years. But when the issue, not if, but when the issue is joined, I want to see somebody who is unabashedly in favor of free speech. There will be limits, but we want an argument in favor of free of speech. And that gets to the question I was going to ask. You said the cases haven't been heard when it comes to free speech on the Internet. What's the case you think needs to be heard in order to not settle the question, but at least start addressing the question of what the First Amendment means to the Internet, I think is the way you put it. It's, I think that's, that's exactly the right question to ask. So what we've done in creating the Institute is to say we want 
to have convenings. We want to have uh, sessions with all kinds of people to talk about First Amendment issues because we don't actually know. We don't know if it's going to be government action that will impinge on traditional First Amendment rights. We don't know if it'll be societal attitudes that will uh, somehow affect the way we think and talk about the First Amendment. What I'm saying is that we want a place where there is scholarship done, where there are uh, conferences around the issues, and ultimately uh, have the power and the resources to bring legal action, because it's through that kind of legal action that we have come to enjoy the First Amendment, too many people think has always been there. Mm -hmm. It hasn't always been there. That's why it's really important to remember that the, the First Amendment we know and love is the one that comes from New York Times versus Sullivan on down. You know, how do WikiLeaks and Snowden, how, does, how do their actions inform your thinking in terms of First Amendment and the Internet? So these are things that need to be debated. There was never any opportunity, any possibility of a Snowden uh, or a WikiLeaks uh, before Internet, before uh, social media. Now it's commonplace. Now, just the other day, I mean, uh, th there was hacking of Yahoo. Before, a year ago, I got a note from the State Department because I had been on, a, on an advisory committee at mm -hmm. the State Department saying that, by the way, all of your information now resides in Beijing, probably. Um, that's incredible. What a world. There are real consequences to this. There are real consequences to transparency and to free speech. And at the time when these things happen, I want somebody at the table, somebody at the courthouse that is saying, let's err on the side of transparency. Let's err on the side of free speech. That's not to say that everything is black and white. We know it isn't. The First Amendment itself isn't. Although the First Amendment is fairly clear. It says Congress shall make no law abridging freedoms, uh, the, the freedoms of speech, press, religion, uh, assembly, a redress of grievance, five phenomenal rights. But they also don't say, well, what happens if it's not Congress? What happens if it's mm -hmm. Google? What happens if, think about it, Google, Apple, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook have more ability to control what we know or think we know than anything in history, than any one in history, than any government has ever had. Hmm. This is amazing. And if you don't think that that's, if you, you know, I've talked with some folks who say, well, it's really not uh, meant to be a certain point. It's just an algorithm. Well, even algorithms have parents. And the parents, <laughs> and the parents, the programmers, imbue the algorithm consciously or not consciously with some kind of value. So, for example, a year and a half ago, you would have, if you typed in thug, into Google, you would have gotten in images, when you click on images, pictures of young black men. Mm -hmm. That was exposed. That was, well, not exposed. That was, that was discussed. And they've obviously taken corrective measures because if you type in thug today, you get pictures of young black thugs and young white thugs. There, there were not, when I did this, any young Hispanic thugs. Um, but nevertheless, 
somehow that algorithm knows what it is supposed to present, and that affects what we think and what we think we know. One of the things that I, I struggle with, or I did two things. The democratization of information, I think, has been a joy and a curse. The joy is for all the things you've been talking about, about how everyone, when you were a young journalist, when I was a journalist, even in college, I had access to so much information, much more information than the rest of the public did because I was a journalist. Today, because of the internet, people outside these these walls here at the Washington Post have access to the same amount of information as we do inside. And they're getting the news in real time, just as just as we are. And that's a wonderful thing. The problem I've I'm increasingly having is that the democratization of information has led people to live their worlds in information silos where they congregate philosophically, ideologically, with people politically, with people who agree with them or their point of view or their worldview. And they surround themselves by people who validate, validate them. And I'm just w- wondering what your view is on that and how damaging is that or not to journalism, but also to our democracy as we know it. You're right about the information silos. And I don't know what to do about that. I I don't know uh, what the right balance uh, needs to be. I don't think we've had enough experience yet. This is a relatively new phenomenon online. I do think I know that Internet has a a democratic, small-d democratic Mm -hmm. promise like nothing else in history. Everybody is able to to speak. Everybody is able to write. Everybody is able to have the access to information that that you just referred to referred to. But you remember, Jonathan? There, I remember. Well, I remember clearly uh, being in the in the newsroom at, at Newsday one time. I was not actually a journalist, as my son, who was a journalist, mm-hmm. would remind you. Um, I was a lawyer who ran a newspaper, right. and. Uh, and I remember talking with somebody at one of the wonderful investigative reporters at Newsday, and he said, well, we're hearing reports that X, Y, or Z. And I said, well, that doesn't sound right. Is that really true? And he said, well, I don't know, but we're hearing reports. And I thought <laughs> – and I, I, I often think back to that – by the way, that never made the paper. Why? Because in the normal course of a news newsroom process – his crusty copy editor said, hey, kid, where'd you hear that? Prove it to me. What's your source? And ultimately, they, tr- they were doggedly trying to figure out what actually happened. Not we're hearing reports, but what actually happened. We don't have that filter in, in, a, in a truly democratic, small d, democratic internet. How we deal with that in the society, I think, is the challenge of the next decade. We're hearing reports could be like the sub the the, the tagline for Twitter because I find myself, yeah. you know, sitting on Twitter yeah. and using it like the wires, and I have through learning and trial and error, you know, figuring out who who I can trust. And the thing that I am finding most frustrating and most interesting is the fact that there are no trusted sources. People- how, can, how can there be? I remember uh, Daniel Shore. You remember him? Mm-hmm. Daniel Shore in one of the Israeli, I think it was 
I don't, I don't remember which one of the Middle Eastern conflicts, but Jerusalem was being attacked with Scud missiles. And um, he's, he's back in control, and somebody is, in, is on camera, and they say, what, what? Uh, oh, uh, okay, we've been told, we just got a call that we can take our gas masks off. And sure, being an old line journalist, uh, says, wait a minute, wait a minute, before you take those masks off, who made the call? How did you verify that it was truthful right, information? Right, right. <laughs> did the call come from the other side? Right. Uh, that tells you something about the nature of live reporting. Mm-hmm. You see things as they evolve. The problem is we're still in a world where we trusted the final product. But the final product now doesn't even pretend to be um, a a verified uh, kind of story. Right. There are many times when you'll see, especially on television, we haven't been able to independently verify. But hey, look, here, here it is. But here it is. And so I guess my view is, look, this is the price of ultimate democracy. And we are going to have to figure out along the way. I don't have an answer. I really just don't. Uh, but we're going to have to figure out along the way uh, what are trusted sources? Wh- how do we decide? Maybe, for one thing, we have teach students basic media literacy, how to be skeptical readers uh, as opposed to trusting readers. It's, I feel kind of awful about that. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I think it's absolutely necessary. And I think people need to develop more, more experience. But there are people who are just completely distrustful readers. They don't trust anything that they read. What do you do? How do you reach them? I think you reach them by regularly, consistently publishing your best effort at the truth, your best effort at, uh, at fact. Tim Berners-Lee, who famously invented the World Wide Web, was a grantee, not when he invented the web, was was a grantee of uh, Knight Foundation. We were talking one time. We supported his uh, uh, World Wide Web Foundation. And uh, and I I said, uh, geez, Tim, I I wish we were doing some fundraising for him. And I said, I wish wish you had taken out a patent on the World Wide Web because then we wouldn't have to do any fundraising. We'd have the biggest foundation in the world (laughs) to do all kinds of good things to make the web free and universal. And he said some version of, look, I didn't take out a patent on the World Wide Web because I thought this should be, and for it to work, it had to be free and universal. And the biggest threat to a free and universal web, he said, is the lack of authenticity, meaning the lack Mm -hmm. of truthfulness, the number of people who will use it to cheat, to lie, to to dissemble, to to put out uh, rumors that you know are false, but nevertheless, you put them out and say, we've heard reports, same thing. People are Uh, saying. People people are saying, (laughs) or I've heard, or someone said. Um, and, uh, and what, and I said, well, what do you want? Do you want to, do you want to do a project with 10,000 fact checkers? And he said, no, that's a newspaper solution. I'm an engineer. I want to write code to create programs that will check facts, that will, that will verify facts so that whoever is reading this, whoever is hearing this, whoever is viewing the information on internet will be able to instantly one day, uh, be able to verify the facts. So I think, Jonathan, when when 
when those of us who came up from a cert, in a certain system think about how would we solve the problem, we often tend to think about it in terms of that system, that mm-hmm. system that we knew and grew up in. When somebody like Tim does it, when he thinks about it in his terms, he thinks about it as the solution is going is not going to be a fact-checking solution. It is going to be a program, a, a computer program algorithm that will instantly be available, maybe even by a touch of your of your glasses. Uh, I saw that Snapchat is now doing glasses. Yes. And very exciting stuff. And maybe just by touching the glass, I'll know whether you just told me the truth. I love the fact that, um, one, you have this unbelievable, gee whiz, what an incredible moment, incredible time we are, we, we're in when it comes to information and journalism and knowledge. And I also like the fact that you are willing to, as a foundation president, to say, I've got a foundation and I have no idea what it's going to do. It's the truth has set me free. It, <laughs> it really has. And it does go back. You and I were talking another time about John Cage. It really does go back to uh, a, an early lesson with, uh, with the philosopher and, and composer John Cage. He came to Westland where I was going to school to give a concert in electronic music. So I go down to the chapel. It's an old New England brownstone chapel. The last thing in the world you expect to hear is some avant-garde anything. And this was electronic music. He set up in descending order, thrusting out toward the stage, metal planks, sheets of metal, put microphones along the side, stood in the back and rolled ball bearings and said, that's music. And I thought, if that's music, then there are no rules except for the blinders that we're willing to put on our own imagination. Mm. And that's been a quest ever since. For, for listeners there, you don't, you don't know this, but I'm going to tell you now. Alberto and I have been friends for a long time, 26 years. And when we met 26 years ago, I was but a tender child. Indeed. <laughs> Working as assistant to the president of WNYC with wild dreams of becoming a journalist. What advice would you give 23-year-old me today, in today's world, a 23-year-old... Wait, how old are you, Carol? You're 25. Okay, so what advice would you give Carol... Uh, And then what advice would you give a 40-year-old journalist today? Carol's easy um, because she's she's at a point where she not only should but is trying everything. Um, And I think I think letting letting your imagination, letting your curiosity lead you, uh, I think is is really critically important. By the time you're 40, you really ought to have a fairly good idea of who you are at core. And I think it's important when when people say, you know, well, I I I you ask, well, what do you want to do? And they think, well, I'm, I, they tell you about a job. No, it's not about a job. It's not even about a profession. It's about who you are at the core. What kinds of things do you do well? Are you, are you a general manager? Are you the, the technician? Do you like being out front? Uh, do you like being the person um, behind the scenes? Do you like you've, – you've defined your expression of skills equals happiness – kinds of, of quotients. I've known, I've known folks who have turned down all kinds of opportunities for advancements 
for example, in newsrooms because they were among the very few brilliant writers. I'm thinking of Gene Miller, who won two Pulitzer Prizes getting people off death row before DNA. Hmm. Um, this was pure shoe leather. This was a dogged man with a bone. Um, he could have been editor of almost anything he wanted to be at the Miami Herald, and he always turned it down because he said, I have no desire to manage anybody, and being an editor is editing somebody else's copy, living vicariously through the reporter, and managing people and managing budgets and dealing with people like you, he said to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I want to be happy. I want to write, and I want to work with young writers. And so that's, a, that's maybe an extreme example. But uh, but it's it's always about looking inward in my mind. Mm -hmm. The journalist of tomorrow has what skills? Well, I think the journalist of tomorrow first has has uh, has energy, curi curiosity, tenacity. Um, you must know how to write because you have to be able to exp express yourself. And the act of writing, it seems to me, helps you with the discipline of expression. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to publish, but you really do know how – you really should know how to, uh, how to write, how to communicate uh, clearly. Now, having said that, there may be other ways of doing it. You may find that your medium is YouTube videos. My grandson has shown me some absolutely hilarious videos with, put on by people who are not yet 13 or 14 years old or not more than that. Uh, that are absolutely brilliant, and some of them ha are are wonderfully expressive. Probably don't spell that well, um, <laughs> but uh, but they know their medium. I think until you figure out what your medium is, I think exploring a range of them. What is for sure is that there is no such thing as the kind of security that we develop for journalists in the second half of the 20th century and believe and, and let's not let's not pretend that was always the case it clearly was not the case so people need to be flexible people need to be agile and need to be curious and let and let her rip let her let let go it's actually one of the hardest things to do when you get good at something i can't tell you the number of editors i've talked with who have done brilliant who have published uh, and or written wonderfully about new journalism, about new media, about uh, the future. And, and I, I say, well, but how are you structured in your newsroom? I say, well, and they describe basically the old vertical structure of right. the newsroom, of the reporter to the editor to the copy editor, the senior editor, maybe to the lawyers. And I said, but you've got to let go. You've, and it, but it's really hard to let go when the system that, that gives you the authority to grab on is the system that has made you successful, that has made you even maybe famous. It's really tough. So I, I think uh, I, I know we're in the offices of the Washington Post, but I think that's got to be one of the things that is going on here probably more than – almost any place else, um, because I think The Post is doing more experimentation with how to use the new media. I think that's the thing. It's Don't, don't be afraid of it. How to use the new media uh, than, uh, than any, I think, than any other publication going. Mm -hmm. So for the old line editors in this building who are having 
uh, taking Alka-Seltzer as they're listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's maybe there's a new a new stomach settler. Um, just listen. Take another take another round of Alka-Seltzer and let go. Alberto Ibarguen, president of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. What a thrill to have you on Cape Up. It's wonderful to be here with you, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Tune in every Tuesday for Cape Up. Now, we love hearing from you, so keep going to iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play to download new episodes. And do me a favor, rate and review while you're at it. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.